This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. The work of redemption was complete at the death of Christ on your behalf and my behalf. Complete and total. There's nothing He had to add to it, and there's nothing we can add to it. We were bought at a precious price, and that was for a purpose. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Because of the sin in the garden, we've all been infected with a disease. No one is immune from it. We've all inherited it. It's an illness passed down from Adam. It's sin. You see, we're all born as sinners. No one can claim to be without sin. And to go a step further, there's no one who can cleanse themselves of their sin. That's why Jesus came. It's because of what He did that we can be set free and healed of our sin. All we must do is accept Him as our Savior. We must believe. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 2, for the conclusion of our message entitled, Our King Victorious and Sufficient. The very thing that held you and I captive. No longer hold us captive. Now, can we put ourselves under it? Yeah, unfortunately that's true. But the word is very clear. Paul is very straightforward in this. That we are no longer slaves to sin. That we are no longer under that bondage. Do we come under it? Yes, we do. We allow ourselves to come under it. But again, the victory is found in Christ. It's the idea that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, when he declares, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He tells us a little later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57, a very familiar verse probably to many of you, when he declares, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? He says that the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of receiving gifts, our victorious King, He dispersed gifts. Our God, through His grace, has given us gifts, multiple gifts, and diverse gifts. Now back here in Ephesians, Paul then gives his commentary, or his explanation of using the quote from Psalm 68. We look at verses 9 and 10. And Paul writes, he says, Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, I need you to hang in there, okay? Because, again, as we get into some of this, it might not be as as fast-moving, it might not be as interesting that would keep your attention. So you need to work this morning at paying attention, okay? You need to work at being dialed in. I don't have a whole lot of funny stories to go with this stuff, okay? I don't have the jokes to, to keep your attention. You need to do this on your own today, okay? 
because it's here, there's a couple of issues that we need to consider. I don't want to belabor the point uh, or to bore you with too much detail on it, but I do want to spend some time on this because some very, very bad doctrine has come out of this very passage and a couple of others that they try to tie in with what Paul is saying right here in verses 9 and 10. There's many that have made major issues out of what's said in these verses, taking the opportunity to build some major false doctrines, declaring that Jesus had to suffer in hell for our sins. Beloved, that just ain't so. Paul simply states it, and he moves on. He makes this statement in verses 9 and 10, and he moves on. But because of the misuse of this passage by so many within the Christian community, we need to spend a moment. We need to spend a moment or two this morning. In these two verses, verses 9 and 10, we have, He ascended. He also first descended. He who descended is also the one who ascended. In other words, what he's saying is he went up, but he had also come down. And he who came down also went back up. And in the midst of that, we also have the fact that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. And then he ascended far above all the heavens. So, if you've got all that, we're good. Let's move on. Really and truly, it is that simple. The problem is, is some have added to it greatly. All Paul is stating is that Christ could ascend back into the heavenlies because there had been a time that he descended from the heavenlies. That's the simplicity of it. Paul's very clear about this same concept in many of his other writings. In Philippians chapter 2, he writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, in other words, being in the form of God, his place, his position in glory, taking now the form of a bondservant, in other words, he says he continues on, and coming now in in the likeness of men, now he descended. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself, taking upon the form of humanity. He left the throne room of glory. He came, he took upon himself human flesh. He suffered, he died for us, the death of crucifixion. And then as Paul goes on to tell us in Philippians chapter 2, God rightly and justly exalted him then once again. Paul tells us there in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John tells us a very similar thing in in John's gospel message. In John chapter 1, again, very, very familiar verses to many of us. He says in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In other words, he was in the heavenlies. And the Word was God. And he goes on, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, speaking of Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then down in verse 14, 
the one who was with God in the heavenlies. In verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh, and now descended. He dwelt among us. He descended to the earth. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and, and truth. A little bit later in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but He who came down. From heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. This is the same thing Paul is bringing out. But a little bit later, John, still in his gospel message, chapter 6, verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus, again, and I know it's repetitious, but you need to understand that this is the understanding of all the apostles of who Jesus is, what he did, and why he did it. Jesus, the very word of God, the very essence of God, with God and being God, he descended to the earth. He took upon himself humanity, human flesh, and he lived among us. Then he was crucified on the cross, he died, he was buried, and then he rose again from the dead and ascended back to the Father. This is the same concept, this is the same truth that Paul is referring to here in Ephesians. There in verse 9, he says, now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended? Remember, he was the one who came down. Now that's the simple part. That ought to be clear to all of us. There ought to not be a question about that in any believer's heart, mind, understanding. That Jesus dwelt with the Father as God. He took upon himself human flesh, came and dwelt among us until it was time for him to go back. Now comes the problem. Some look at the balance of this statement here. When Paul says, he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And suddenly they declare that Jesus had to go to hell and suffer torment for those three days in order to complete our salvation. Thus the cross is no longer sufficient. Jesus had to suffer and die an even deeper death in hell. And again, beloved, this just isn't so. The cross is sufficient. It is wholly and completely sufficient for our sin. I know where they get the ideas from. I know that there's other verses that they pull. They pull bad interpretations of various and assorted verses, here a little, there a little, and they pull together and, and build their own doctrine out of this thing. And yet we don't see that doctrine proclaimed without or within and through the Scriptures. I need you to hang in there with me a little bit longer, okay? I need you to, again, understand, because this deals with the sufficiency of the cross. And, beloved, the sufficiency of the cross is necessary for us in multiple ways. Because if the cross isn't sufficient, that means that I need to do something else to enable my salvation. Beloved, there's nothing you can do beyond the cross. The cross did it all. Christ did it all for us when he died on the cross. And if the cross isn't sufficient, there ain't nothing you can do to help. Bad English, but good theology, okay? <laughs> the cross is sufficient. There's nothing 
necessary. Nothing needs to be added to what Christ did there. And if we build on that, then we have problems. Now, we're going to step a little bit deeper into waters here, okay? The first problem that we have, that we see here, is the idea and the understanding of Hades, of the grave, of Sheol, or of hell. Now, we don't have time to get into all of it today, but I need to give you a little bit of clarity on the Old Testament Hebrew words and on the New Testament Greek words, as well as a translation problem with the King James Version in order to get to this. And I promise not to drown you, okay? One of the verses that they look at is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and rather than the entire psalm, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11, kind of the last half of this psalm, because this is where part of the problem comes from in those that believe that Jesus went to hell and suffered there. In Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11, the, well, Psalm 16 itself has, has various messianic declarations within it. Several things in Psalm 16 that we can look and say, no, that speaks of Jesus there. Beginning in verse 8, we read these words, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. Man, that ought to be our life verse right there, you know. That's just the way we need to live. Verse 9 goes on, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. But verse 10 is where the problem comes in. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forever. Now, depending upon what version of the Bible you have, verse 10 may have read for you that you will not leave my soul in hell. The problem with that is our understanding, our connotation of hell. Now, Peter uses this very same passage in Acts chapter 2. Remember on the day of Pentecost, we're not going to look at that, just suffice it to say he says the same thing. And again, if you've got a King James, it also states in Acts chapter 2 that you will not leave my soul in hell. And what should be a very uh, encouraging psalm, suddenly there is this question, this, this problem of what does he mean, leaving my soul in hell? Our connotation of hell is simply this. It's a place of, of torment. It's a, a place of suffering. If you've read your Bible, if you understand what Jesus speaks about hell, it's a place of eternal suffering, eternal punishment, an eternal fire, a place where the worm does not die, and, and again, the fire does not cease. That's, that's Jesus' teachings, folks. So if you've got a problem with an eternal hell, don't come after me after the service. Just, just take it up with Jesus, okay? Because that's what his word says. Our understanding of hell is a place of suffering and torment. And because of that understanding, those that read, well, Jesus went to hell, Jesus must have suffered in hell because that's what happens there in hell. And they continue to build on this. But the problem is, is contextually, number one, in the Hebrew, the word is sheol. In the Greek, in Acts, when Peter refers to it, he uses the Greek word Hades. 
and both of them have a direct meaning with the, the, the place of the departed dead, both good and bad. One reading even actually says grave, but they don't mean the hole in the ground that we put people. They mean the place of the departed dead. Now, the Jewish understanding within the structure of Sheol, which is what Psalm uh, 16 declares, Sheol, there was a place of division there within that. We see this in the story in, in Luke chapter 16. And remember when Jesus talks about the, the sinful, the selfish, the self-seeking rich man that dies. And, and Lazarus, the one with all the boils and the sores, the beggar outside of the rich man's door, he dies also. And they both go to Sheol. But the rich man, because of his sin, goes to the place of torment, whereas Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort, a a place of bliss, a, a place, again, of no suffering there at all. We know that there's suffering in hell because Jesus, even as he tells this story, speaks of the torment that that rich man is under during this time, and how comfortable, how beautiful, how relaxing, how refreshing it was for Lazarus on the other side there in Abraham's bosom. Now remember, even Jesus who told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So again, it was the Jewish understanding of the good place, the comfortable place, the place of bliss there in Sheol. And unfortunately, in in many translations of the Bible, translators aren't consistent, they're not correct on how they translate that Hebrew or that Greek word. And, And just using hell, it makes for a very unfortunate understanding for many readers. And because of that, some have the viewpoint, they jump to the conclusion that Jesus went to hell. He went to the suffering side of Sheol, or Hades, in order to further be punished for our sins. Some that hold on to this doctrine, they, they even believe that Jesus had to suffer, actually that he had to die three deaths. Did you know that? He had to die the physical death on the cross, But while he was suffering in hell, he also had to die a soul death and a spirit death. Why? Because man is made up of three parts, our body, soul, and spirit. And the sin of all of them, Jesus had to atone for. And he couldn't do it all on a physical cross. Therefore, he had to suffer in hell because of it. And yet, throughout the New Testament, it's the death of Christ on the cross that completed our payment for sin, that nothing else was necessary. There is nowhere biblically that we can see this other false doctrine or even the need for it. Remember, just as we've stated over and over already in our, in our teachings thus far in, in the book of Ephesians, the death of Jesus on the cross, his suffering there on the cross in our place, was sufficiently, completely, and totally providing our redemption. Nothing else necessary. Remember the word speaks over and over that the shedding of blood that cleanses us of all unrighteousness. His physical blood that was shed for us. As he hung there on the cross, the word speaks to the fact that the very sin of the world came upon him while he was hanging physically on the cross, not after he died. 
And again, Paul gives a simplicity of the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the very beginning. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, there's no need to come up with some special extra doctrine or teaching that dismisses the sufficiency of the cross because the cross is sufficient. If it wasn't, Paul would have added, and he suffered for our sin. Paul would have made that very clear to us. But nowhere in the New Testament does it speak of it. Our king now reigns victorious over sin and death. Remember, on the cross, as Jesus hung there, do you remember of those seven last words, what he declared? He said, it is almost finished. It's not what he said, is it? It is finished, complete. The work of redemption was complete at the death of Christ on your behalf and my behalf. Complete. And total. There's nothing he had to add to it, and there's nothing we can add to it. We were bought at a precious price, and that was for a purpose. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Every part of the body of Christ doing its part is how we bring glory and honor to our God. In order to help us to grow and help us to be equipped for that work, the Lord Jesus appointed within the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Some say that, well, we don't need apostles and prophets anymore because we have the completed canon of scripture well if we did away with some of them why not do away with all of them some say that once we got the completed canon of scripture we no longer need the gifts of the spirit because those were given to the church before the scriptures came but beloved i don't believe that's true i don't believe that clearly and honestly looking at the scripture without already a preconceived notion on this that you can really say that all those things are done away with I believe an honest look at the Scripture says, no, they're still there. They, they should still be active. Oh, is there misuses of those things? Absolutely. And we're going to be getting into that as we get into this next section of Scripture. We're also going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I encourage you to read that, study it, look at it. And Romans chapter 12. Read it, study it, look at it as we get in further into this teaching. But let me close this morning reminding you just of this once again and I know I've said it before in this study but I want to remind you once again because we need to be reminded God didn't design us as mirror image copies of each other that was never his purpose we're not punched out of a cookie cutter out of our mother's womb and everybody is the same there are differences because the gifting the calling in your life is going to complete the areas that I'm not called in. The areas that you're strong in, that God created you for purpose, it's going to make whole the work of the body of Christ. 
as individuals, we're not called to be conformed to the image of each other. No, we are called to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're to have the mind of Christ, but we still remain individual and particular members of the body, working and serving together as he has equipped us. Beloved, we serve a great and a victorious king who is worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience. We need to serve him through the grace and the giftings that he's given us and given to each one of us. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. Pastor David will continue verse by verse through the book of Ephesians next time. Now, we want to encourage you to become a Facebook friend with us. Log on to theopenword.com and follow the link to the Open Word Facebook page. To stay current with what's being broadcasted here on The Open Word, subscribe to our Twitter feed at The Open Word Radio. You can subscribe to The Open Word Podcast at theopenword.com or search for The Open Word in the iTunes Store. The Open Word Podcast is always available and completely free. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to the Open Word Podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to theopenword.com and subscribe to the Open Word Podcast. And to become our Facebook friend, follow the Open Word Twitter feed, or to access the archive of messages, Log on to TheOpenWord.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We invite you to join us again for the next study of Pastor David's teaching through the book of Ephesians. That's next time on The Open Word.